But we continue week seven in our series on flourishing in relationships. If I can remind you, we've talked about the circle of love for multiple weeks. We talked about God as love, and now we're talking about areas of sexuality. And I've invited a, a dear man who I have the highest respect for to be our pastor this morning. Let me tell you a bit about Ron. Pastor Ron Sitlow is a man for whom I have great admiration and great appreciation. Let me describe him to you. He is a committed follower of Jesus. He's a husband, four children, four sons, a local church pastor in Chicago. He is an author. He's a friend to many. Ron serves the church that my dad did 65 years ago in Chicago. And he is used in ways that are quite remarkable to bring the kingdom of God. I sat at the first service and I found myself weeping multiple times. One, because I know who Ron is and I know his story, his testimony. But he gave me hope this morning and I'll just give you a little bit of a preview. One of the things he said to me that was so rich when I can be discouraged about the kingdom of darkness and how people are often so oppressed and in bondage, that we have a king named Jesus who wants to give us a new name, who wants to invite us into his story and he wants to set us free. I think, I'm praying that we will open our hearts because he will tell multiple stories, all focused on the king and the kingdom, but then he's gonna tell his own story, and you're invited to listen, and in your hearts, tell your story. Would you pray with me, please? We thank you for this morning and the privilege we have to gather and worship. Lord, we ask that you would continue to heal our relationships, to strengthen our relationships, to allow us to flourish in our relationships so that in every way, in every relationship, we would look and act like the one who gives us a new name. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ron. Hello, good morning. I'm honored to be here. I hung out in Pella yesterday. I was looking for tulips. <laughs> I'm not sure. They're not here yet. I, uh, I'm going to tell you stories today. And I want to uh, talk about what is true. But I don't want to do it with facts or information so much as uh, if God is gracious to us that he would provoke your heart with your imagination and your, your emotions and your affections so that uh, you might be awakened to the world that is around you. And uh, the way that I want to start is by telling you a uh, talk about a fairy tale, a uh, piece of fiction, uh, what's called myth. And it was written by C.S. Lewis, and it's, it's called uh, the Hit, That Hideous Strength. And in the book, there's this couple, Jane and Mark, uh, Mark is a university professor who is climbing the ladder of success, and his wife is uh, someone who keeps having dreams, and these dreams are uh, very shocking and troubling to her, and she's trying to figure out what is going on, and underneath all of this is this organization called NICE that is ran by 
uh, the dark ones or the bent aladia, which are like angels or demons, and uh, the aladia rule uh, the solar system, the bright ones, and it's only on earth that uh, there is sin and there is fallenness. And the goal of the dark ones or the bent ones is to introduce power to humanity so that because now they believe that they are like God, that they can do what they want, that if power is married to this broken will, that hell will come on earth, which is their goal. And so they know that Jane has been having dreams about Merlin. This story quickly becomes an Arthur-esque tale, King Arthur and Merlin the magician. And uh, in this little English town, all of a sudden, uh, they believe that Merlin is actually buried on the grounds of the college and that if they can find him, that uh, he will awaken and he has power that they can marry uh, with the darkness and thus overthrow any chance of the good. Uh, who I want to talk about as we begin this morning is her husband, Mark. Uh, Mark is not a bad person by any degree, uh, but he makes some very bad choices over time that brings him to the very depths of darkness. And uh, this is what uh, Lewis says about him. He says, it must be remembered that in Mark's mind, hardly one rag of noble thought, either Christian or pagan, had a secure lodging. His education had been neither scientific nor classical, merely modern. The severities both of abstraction and of high human tradition had passed him by, and he had neither peasant shrewdness nor aristocratic honor to help him. He was a man of straw, a glib examinee in subjects that require no exact knowledge. He was learned but not wise. He uh, knew so many things, but it couldn't help him live. He uh, excelled in things that he could do in academia, but his marriage was falling apart. On one sense, he's the best that we could do, we could produce. And on uh, another sense, he is a broken man who's lost. And it's this kind of person that the bent ones, the dark aladia, uh, know that they can use for their purposes of not only keeping earth broken, but eternally out of the hands of the light. Uh, this is what they say about him. Why you fool? It's the educated reader who can be gold. All of our difficulty comes with the others. But the educated public, the people who read the highbrow weeklies, don't need reconditioning. They are all right already. They'll believe anything. And so Mark is set up to uh, these uh, set of meetings in which he is slowly brought into this organization. And what Lewis says about him is that he doesn't, uh, you couldn't even point to the moment in which he moved from uh, the light or innocence into the shadow and darkness. It was little movements over time that brought him into really into the descent into hell in which every great story has. And he finds himself facing evil and what Lewis wants to consider is how could such a learned person do such a thing? How could he even consider uh, he's being asked to betray his wife, he's being asked to do really dark things? And Lewis writes, what should they find incredible since they believe no longer in a rational universe? 
What should they regard as too obscene since they held that all morality was a mere subjective byproduct of the physical and economic situations of men? The time was ripe. This moment in which Mark is interacting with the dark ones uh, has been set up by the bent Eladia over centuries to slowly remove uh, mystery and myth and religion and light and goodness as things to know and that are grounded in reality instead to push them to the margins of, of silliness and not worth the mind of a modern individual who wants to do modern things and make great strides in modernity. And so they want to imprison him and they use all the things that they have built around him to do it. He is the archetype of the normal human being in modernity. On the other side, it's his wife, Jane, who keeps having dreams. And these dreams are actually, she's a clairvoyant, Lewis says, and in this story, this fantasy story, this myth, she keeps having dreams about the future, about what's going to happen. And they are shocking, dark dreams. And she's so uh, troubled by them. But her dreams are actually are what is true. While the things that Mark see and what he thinks is important have no value at all. And she is with this small group of people that are seeking to destroy this organization. And she asks them, how can we know that my dreams are true? How can I know that what is happening is real? Because I can't see it, I can't touch it, I can't uh, feel it. How am I supposed to know that what's happening is true? And the professor says to her, I've seen a good many things in my time that weren't there or weren't what they were letting on to be. Rainbows and reflections and sunsets, not to mention dreams. I will not deny that I have observed a class of phenomena that I have not yet fully accounted for, but they never occurred at a moment when I had a notebook handy or any facilities for verification. What Lewis is doing in the story, which he does in all of his fiction, is he's telling you and I the truth. He's using mythology to awaken our heart to what is most real in our life. That there is good and there is evil. There are angels and there are demons. There are principalities and powers. And there are men and women who decide their part in this great and grand story. There are heroes in the most unlikely places. And there are villains who never intended to be one at all. And there is Jesus the Son. Lewis, C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien talked about Christianity and they said it is the one true myth. 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus walked upon the earth and he had a ministry in which he proclaimed the kingdom of God is here. And the ruffians and the outsiders and the broken, the prostitutes and the nobodies, the sinners and the sick and the hungry, uh, they were drawn to him. They called him the friend of sinners as a slight, as an insult. And he invited them into his father's kingdom and he, he made it available to anyone uh, who wanted it. It was no longer a set of rules and regulations to be followed, but a person to know. 
And in his death and his resurrection, uh, he vindicated that the story of his father and of the son and of the spirit is the story of reality. It is what is ultimately true. Uh, what we have to admit uh, that perhaps many of us, most of us, we believe that uh, the grand story of Jesus and Israel, of creation, of the fall, of redemption, is true in fact. But we're not sure if it's true for us. That our hearts aren't burning with the same kind of burning that the hero's heart burns in the best stories. That we aren't aware that there are forces of good and of evil and that things matter in our actions and in our words. We often marginalize that there's power beyond what we can do, what the sciences show us. We've become rational modern people who won't be tricked into believing silliness. And in so doing, we have lost the heart of the great story. And it is this morning my hope that we can reclaim that heart. We are gonna talk about homosexuality actually and we're gonna do it by telling stories. I've told you one story, it's a myth, and uh, now we're going to uh, look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, Paul is categorizing uh, two, two groups of sin, uh, one is uh, sexual immorality or sexual uh, idolatry, and then these other sins against uh, the way that we treat others. We're going to focus on uh, that first half, sexual immorality, idolaters, adultery, homosexuality. Now, the, the worst thing that you and I could do is to read these and to think that Paul is listing an ethics list, that the kingdom of God is whether or not you have done these things or not. Now, they are the ultimate proof of which kingdom you live in, but the point that Paul is doing here is he's trying to spark your imagination with a story. And it is the story of the kingdom of God. Uh, he, he, he wants the church in Corinth to be awakened to uh, grander things than ordinary lives. They, he wants them to understand that there's a lot more going on than just going to work and having a family and paying your bills. That each person in Corinth, each person here at Third Church is part of a grand story with extraordinary weight upon each person in which uh, the bent of eternity will be decided. 
Not only for you, but those around you, for the world, for the cosmos. And so he uses as the launching point of the kingdom of God as talking about what the kingdom does not look like. But he wants to invoke in the hearts of his readers, of his listeners, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has a story. And the story is this. Uh, there once was a husband king. And he was the most powerful king. And he ruled a great and, and powerful kingdom. And uh, all the maidens of the land wanted him. And he could have anyone he wanted. He was so powerful. He was so winsome, so, uh, so comely, so handsome. And uh, he could have uh, his pick of any of the maidens of the land. And uh, one would think that he would pick someone powerful and beautiful, uh, someone that at least somehow measures to his stature, though that would never be possible. And there's this young maiden, uh, humble beginnings, a nobody, no one of uh, the kind of pedigree that would make the neighbors go, oh my goodness, she's the one he should pick. But she was beautiful in his eyes and he pursued her. And he drew her away with words of affection and their desire drew, uh, grew for one another. And over time, uh, his words and his actions won her over so that uh, she began to long to be with him in life. And so he offers her his hand in marriage and she says yes. And uh, there's this celebration of this marriage, of this union of the great king and this modest maiden. And his love over time makes her glorious. She's beautiful, but he makes her stunning. He, he uh, regales her in the wealth and the glory and the authority of his kingdom. So now that she has the same stature as her husband, and he defends her and he fights for her and whatever she wants, he gives her land and riches and authority and power. He's a good husband. Uh, he's not always at home. He's not always there with her. There are things to do in his kingdom and he has to do them. He's just to do them. He's good to do them. And while she is alone, over time, illicit lovers begin to woo her, begin to whisper to her, begin to call her and to say, you can, my affection is something that you should have. My desire is something that you want. Uh, what I can give you is, is something that will cause your heart to soar. I will make you more beautiful. I will make it more delightful. She was won over by them. She listened to them. And she opened her bed to them. Not just one illicit lover, but lover after lover after lover. Eventually, the husband found out and the husband was angry. He was right to be angry. He was just to be angry. He was a good king. He had only loved her. He had only been good to her. He had only been kind to her. He had regaled her with all of his riches. He had brought her into the stature of his kingdom, second only to him. And so he threw her out. 
and she went to live with her other lovers. Surely they would be like him, that they would be kind and gracious and good, and that the whispers that they have whispered in her ear would, would win, win, her, win her over, and uh, she could have a, a good life with these illicit lovers. But they were not good like the king. They were not kind like the king. They used her and they abused her. They treated her like a harlot. And over time, what seemed so expansive and free and beautiful uh, began to become bondage and oppression. And before long, she was isolated and alone. A whisper of her former self, all used up. And in her shame, she realized there's no one who would ever want me now. There is... I have nothing to give. I don't have the purity of my youth. I don't have the beauty uh, that I first had. It's all been taken from me. I've been marred by my decisions. And now I sit here in this, this cell, this prison, this oppression by these illicit lovers who have become my own enemy. Now, the king uh, had sent emissaries over time to both check on her lovers and on her. And when he sees her at her lowest point in really uh, the full revelation of her choices, she imprisoned herself. She went away with those lovers. She left him for them. Her choice, her fault, she deserves to be there. But something unexpected happens in his heart. He's recoiled by mercy. He falls in love again. He is stirred by affection again. He's overwhelmed by his love for his bride and becomes angry that these lovers would treat the one he loves this way. And so he does what every hero does in the hero's story. He goes to rescue the maiden in distress, his bride. And he moved into the area in which she was held in prison and to rescue her was high and costly. He had to lay down his life. The hero had to die. And you would think that that's the end of the story. Boy, he's noble. Boy, he's good. But he died. He freed her, but she has no place to go. Her defender, her warrior, her king, her husband is gone. But this is where the turn of the story is of another world. Not even death could keep him from the one he loves. And all of a sudden she is uh, face to face with her lover, this king who has defeated even death. And now nothing stands in the way between the husband king and, and this bride. And now he woos her and he loves her. And over time, he makes her more beautiful than she was even when she was a virgin maiden. He dresses her in his glory. He does everything to restore her to her former beauty and then far, far beyond. That is the story of the kingdom of God. This is what Paul says in Ephesians. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. 
This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. So verse 31 is the creation mandate from Genesis. It is uh, the mandate that, uh, that institutes marriage at the very beginning of everything. And Paul is saying that if you want to understand marriage, man is for woman and woman is for man, you have to know the great mystery, which is the great story. The husband king has come for his bride. So why is homosexuality and adultery and fornication, why are they wrong? Because they tell the wrong story. We are not beasts of burden driven by desire. We are not small little things that can't control who we are and what we do. Instead, we're great and glorious beings made in the image of God and our bodies are meant to tell a story. So Paul is trying in ways to, to provoke the imagination and the heart and the emotions of the readers and the listeners in Corinth. And he's doing it with us by the spirit of God is don't you understand that you are part of a great and glorious story? Jesus is real. He walked upon the earth. He has power over death and life. He moved all of the cosmos with mere words. He's your king and he loves you. And these other ways of living of our wrong stories that diminish the husband king. And that's why they're wrong. Uh, Paul then, uh, he goes into the story actually. Uh, more, look at uh, uh, verse 11. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So uh, here's a secret for you. Kevin tells me he's told you, so it's not a big secret, I guess. If you ever want to understand the Apostle Paul, you read him backwards. Uh, Paul is analytical, so he, 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 his end is what we would think is the beginning, and his beginning is what we would think is the end. Uh, and so the kingdom of God is here. The husband king has pursued his bride, the church, and he is making us lovely because one day there's going to be the marriage supper of the lamb and all of the cosmos will see the husband king marry his bride and they will rule and reign forever. So know these things. These are the things that Paul says. The kingdom is available to you. You were justified. When the husband king pursues his bride, she was not his friend. She hated prison, but she had no imagination. Uh, she had no faith to be in a greater story than her chains. She was used and abused and she knew it, used up, beat up, tossed aside. He pursues her before she believes the right things about him, about herself, about the world. He said yes to her long before she said yes to him. 
that's to be justified. It is that he has decided that you're the one. He has in the wisdom of his power and authority and affection said you and you and you and you, you will be the objects of my affection and I will pursue you and I will chase you down like the hounds of heaven until you relent to my affection. And so the first thing we say about the kingdom of God that is that we know from the story of the king is that anyone can be a part of it who wants to be. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you are, where you've been, what you think, what other people think about you. The king has decided you are his. The second assertion of Paul is that the kingdom transforms us. You were sanctified. The, the bride starts out innocent and beautiful and in kind of a young, naive, innocent kind of way. She is wrecked and ruined at kind of the, the center of the story. Um, at the end, which you can find in the book of Revelation, she is glorious. She's not just made back to who she was. She is more glorious for having gone through the darkness and into the light. What it means to be sanctified isn't just that you stop doing bad things and you do good things, though uh, that, that is in some sense the proof of sanctification. Sanctification is the abiding work of love that changes you from the inside out. What the king has in mind is not just that you'll choose him because bad things will happen if you don't. What the king has in mind is that your affections are so turned by his love that you choose the good, the noble, the right because you live in the right story, under the right king, going the right way, and know your place in the story. There's simply no other story that even comes close to this. You know, Buddhists embrace suffering so that they might not have a will in it so that they can live at peace. Muslims are not quite sure what God thinks so they do the best they can and they hope for the best. Secularism doesn't even care about any of those things. It's driven by desire. But in the story of Jesus, the King, he pursues those he loves. And then he takes on the project of turning their affections towards him. The third uh, kingdom reality that Paul teaches is that the kingdom washes the, the effects of sin away. You were washed. Uh, you want to think of the imagery of the bride, the, the beat up, used up, uh, horribly assaulted bride who comes in tatters back to the king. And he takes it upon himself as his own work to take off the tattered clothes and to redress her, to tend to the wounds and heal her. He, he takes as his own work, uh, uh, giving her the things that need to be healed from the inside out and to uh, slowly but surely wash away all the effects of her decisions. Uh, when you make decisions, they are born in the body, right? 
If you drink a lot of alcohol over time, you will bear it in your body. If you make choices with your body sexually, you will bear it in your body. If you work out every day, you will bear it in your body. She bore it in her body. We bear our sin in our body. And what Jesus the King promises is I will take care of that too so that you are no longer under the burden of shame and uh, just the, the heavy yoke of condemnation, but instead you once again stand as a noble, glorious one. And the, the fourth thing that the kingdom gives, Paul tells us, is a new name. Uh, the, the maiden is Israel, who becomes the harlot adulterer in the book of Hosea, who becomes the great and glorious bride in the book of Revelation. She is given a new name. What the gospel does is it gives you a new name. Who you are in the fall is, who, is not who you'll be in the resurrection. And it's happening right now. That's why Paul says, such for some of you. Uh, that the gospel, Jesus, he comes and he loves us before we're lovable. He transforms us when there is, uh, there is nothing there to work with. He works in us and washes us from the effects of our sin. And then he says to one of his friends, he said, Peter, you're the rock. And upon you, I'll build my church. Well, he was a heck of a rock, right? Because the next chapter, he abandons Jesus. But whose name won out? Jesus' name won out. He would one day go the path of his master. What about Jacob, right? The conniver becomes Israel, given a new name. Israel, chosen of God. Who won out? The king won out. He gives names to those he loves, and that name has power and authority over everything. It is the truest thing about the human person is the name of the, the king gives to his bride. I want to tell you another story. It's my story. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Dutch Christian school in Southern California, Valley Christian. And uh, I'm not Dutch. I know some Dutch people and uh, I keep running into them throughout my life. And I, uh, I was a good kid. I was a smart kid. I had, you know, brothers and an imagination, very creative. Uh, my parents, for all kinds of reasons, uh, were not very present parents. My mom did the best she could. My dad was, you know, he, he was a good, broken man who always struggled with his own addictions and was never present at home. And as I entered into adolescence and into uh, my own kind of, you know, emerging adulthood, both sexually and emotionally and physically, I was uh, abused, sexually abused by a man uh, much older than me. And I, I'm not sure if uh, what his actions were the things that stirred same-sex desire in my heart or if, if they were there before. All I know is that he named me. And uh, I embraced that name. I became ashamed of that name. I, I ran after that name. I, uh, 
uh, I began to act out uh, in same-sex relationships and uh, began to interact in just the world of shadows. And I was a divided person. I'd go to church, I'd go to school, I would, you know, normal or normal enough. And then this hidden world of darkness and pornography and same-sex encounters and uh, I, I was just so divided as a person, running from the name that I was given and embracing the name that I was given. I was in such deep and horrible conflict that um, I found great solace in drugs and alcohol. And at about 16 or 17, I began to drink every day and I began to use uh, hard narcotics like crystal meth and other things. And uh, over a period of, I think, five to seven years, I descended into the depths of my own hell. I, uh, it was a horrible thing, and uh, I became less and less functional as I went along. And uh, I'm like Mark in the story, uh, though much, uh, just the ability to make choices that are bad without thinking about them, that uh, marked my young adulthood life. And I, had, I remember this one, uh, one moment, you know, I'd grown up in a Christian home, and so all those good, you know, scriptures I learned at Valley Christian came back at the worst times, and uh, I was in this person's home, and we'd been on a drug binge, and um, uh, I was always sexually active, and so there's always something going on. I'm in this bed, and I look up, and I have this, this vision. I don't know if it was like a mental breakdown, if it was a true vision, I have no idea. But I do know that I saw in some way a demon laughing and I knew it was a demon or uh, it was not a good guy. And I asked, I said, why are you laughing? He said, because you're bound. And I was bound. And uh, at the end, my, my mind broke, the, the drugs ruined me. I couldn't even discern between reality and what was going on in my head. And I just remember, it was June of 1997. I was 21 years old, and I was in my parents' garage. And I had not slept in days. I'd been on a bender, and it was rough. And the Lord visited me in that garage. I mean, I didn't see him, but he came. And he said, today you choose between life and death. And I don't know if you've ever had moments of deep and utter clarity. I had a moment of deep and utter clarity, and I saw both paths. And I saw that I was very near death. Whether that was prison or death, I don't know what it was, but it was bad business. Or I could say yes to the king. And, uh, you know, I tried to say yes many times before, you know, like any good fundamentalist family, you know, I've said yes to Jesus about a thousand times. But for some reason, that yes was different. I was just so done, so worn and used up. And I called my friend who was a pastor, and I said, you know, I'm just done. I'm done. And uh, that night, actually, I went to church, and I had, you know, drug paraphernalia in my pockets. I'm handing it to the pastor. It's like, don't go to jail, buddy, you know. Um, and that summer, it was so rough. I was so ashamed because I had all of this darkness, just these horrible things that were in my soul, the things I thought, the things I felt, the things I 
I was. And this name that that man gave me. And it was a church like this, who just so loving, so kind. What I remember about that first experience was that no one ever asked me to change. No one, you know, gave me a list of ethics to figure out. It wouldn't have worked. I was not the kind of person that even made sense to. They just loved me. They brought me to dinner. And, you know, before long, I was living in someone's house. And I was going to church all the time. And this is what I know about Jesus. This is the one thing I know more than anything else. Is he is the God who breaks in. And over that summer, there were one or two times in which he gave me my mind back. He he sobered me from drugs and alcohol. He broke in, and I fell in love. I could not believe that the God of the universe would even care about what I did, and if he did care, that he would be kind and generous to me. And that's what he was. Now, what was broken in me was fairly broken. I had distorted sexual desires. I had, you know, ruined my mind with all kinds of illicit things. And it was a period of about five years in which uh, I was faithful to a community like this, just kept showing up, uh, began to disclose. I was loved enough to believe that a few of my friends could see me for who I was. Scariest thing I've ever done in my life. And I don't just mean like passively, like, hey, I have same-sex desire but relationship after relationship, choice after choice. I was so afraid. So I've never been so afraid in my life. And at every point, I found the God who loves me. At every intersection of the most shameful moments of my human existence, in which I proudly bore the name given to me, he loved me. Not only did he love me, he forgave me, and not only did he forgive me, but he began to root out the darkness in my life in such a way that I began to be someone new. And I began to be transformed. First, my activities. And, you know, there was a time, uh, there was a time in which I couldn't imagine a world without pornography. Could not imagine a world in which that was possible. And then over time, God showed me the world in which pornography is just a really bad idea. And so when I chose to be free, it wasn't because I was following some ethical demands. It's because I love Jesus, and he loves me. And my body and my mind is for better things. And then five or six years on, I met my beautiful wife, who was the church receptionist, and I made my move. I was smooth back then. I was something to look at. My boys tell me not much anymore, but, you know, there was a time. (laughs) And I loved her, and I told her my story, and I said, you're being brought into an adventure, and it's going to be a ride because my desires aren't always clear, and uh, I, I act without thinking, and there's still shadow in me, but I am a good gift, and I want children, and I want a wife, and I want a marriage because that's the story I want to live in. And she said yes to me, and I said yes to her. Now it's 20 years later, and I can tell you, that my marriage has been the most beautiful, hard, glorious, painful, high and low adventure of my life, but it tells the right story. And I'm, you know, 25 years into following Jesus, 
And what I knew at the very beginning, I still know now, is he breaks in. It's so amazing to me when he breaks in. I, I've never, I don't think I've ever asked for it. I don't think I ever sometimes even knew that I needed it. But he is the husband God who loves me. I'm the apple of his eye. He does good even when I don't deserve it. And he is making me glorious. So third church, do not forget the story you live in. There are sinners in this room, uh, probably a few, right? One or two. I see some in the back, raise your hand. <laughs> this is your house. This is the castle in which the king has brought you into. Not to find you out, not to break you, not to humiliate you, not to shame you, but for you to know how glorious you are in his love. There's nothing you've said that you've done that you think, no matter where you've been, what other people think about you, it doesn't matter to the husband king, he is in love and he has paid all that needs to be paid to have you in his house, in his kingdom as his bride. And so the great gift of his love is to be yourself. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would find one or two people to be yourself with, to dare to show another brother or sister, this is it, this is what I really am, what do you think now? And to hear the words of love. There's some people in here who love Jesus and you know, you're gonna go to heaven when you die, but you're grumpy. I know a lot of grumpy Christians. There's many reasons to be grumpy. The world seems, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, the sky is falling mentality. The sky is not falling. The king is on the throne. Act like it. You're emissaries of this king. The, the picture I always have, I try to bring people into, is you, if you were alive during 9-11, uh, there were thousands of people running out and there were hundreds running in. You're supposed to run in. Our master laid down his life. We can too. There are many important things in the world, politics and money and educating our children in safe neighborhoods and safe homes and pleasure and you know retirement funds but they all are worthless in light of Jesus the King. And so live in the right story. Don't live in small stories. Don't make idols out of good things. Then my prayer for you, Third Church, is this, the story of the King is bloody. It's an adventure. There's highs and lows. There's evil. There's good. There's winning. There's losing. They're spending everything on this great and glorious cause of the King. Do not, uh, for fear of failure or of just, you know, we got to keep it so we don't lose anything. That's a very small story. Be known for the generation at Third Church that spent it all on Jesus and his kingdom, whether it's money or people or uh, initiatives or whatever gives, is given in the heart of this church to seek the least and the lost and the broken. Uh, you'll be glad that you lived in the right story. Let's pray.
Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, your son, that you would awaken our hearts, that we would ache and yearn for eternity. Not after death, but right now. Father, your son said that this is eternal life to know God and the son he sent. And I pray for my friends here that we would not settle for words and information and charts and Bible reading schedules, but that we would yearn and fight to live in the grand story that is given by the Spirit of God that gives eyes to the sight, eyes to the blind, hearing to the deaf, legs that walk for the lame, that defeats enemies and does good. Lord, help us to break out of this very small story of ourselves and of a world that believes it has most things figured out. Jesus, we love you. Amen. You see why I love this guy? That's the story. And I'm so grateful in our church family that more and more of us are willing to say, I'm moving from this story into this story. How good is our king? How beautiful his kingdom. Thank you, Ron. I just want to acknowledge this man is an author, and if you'd like more from what he has written, I recommend two books without any reservation. One is Compassion Without Compromise, How the Gospel Frees Us to Love Our Gay Friends Without Losing the Truth. The second book is Hope for the Same Sex Attracted. It's encouraging, and you heard part of the story. Let me pray. Lord, we want to pray that the, the words we have heard not just today, but over weeks and months and years, might be used by your Holy Spirit to write the most glorious story we could imagine. Lord, may your kingdom come and you will be done. And our story is on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.